Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. I'm a... I'm the senior pastor here. My name is Peter Anderson. We're glad you're with us. And as you kind of heard in this video, um, we're discussing this idea of of oikos. Um, And oikos really is, I mean, the way that we would define it, it's the Greek word for household is the way scripture uses it. And so the way we use it is that we believe that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed eight to 15 people in your oikos, your household, uh, for you to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And so as you saw in that video, I mean, there's Sherry Nowak, right, who, uh, you know, helped Ellen come to faith, uh, being her, her youth leader. And then from there, Ellen kept the list and her sister was on that list and she's praying and she's praying and she's praying. And eventually, you know, her sister comes to faith and her sister has her eight to 15 people that she gets an opportunity then to, to talk to those people about Jesus. So you can just see kind of this web sort of forming um, through the different connections and different people who, who have been instrumental in bringing others to faith. And so actually next week, it's kind of cool. We get to piggyback on Ellen's story and hear Janice Hansen's story, Ellen's mom's story uh, next week as well. So you're not going to want to, uh, not going to want to miss that. But we're continuing in this series. It's a, uh, it's a six week series. This is week four. So you got two more weeks as we're, we're pushing through Oikos. And it really points to the idea that Oikos was the main idea uh, or the main way, rather, the good news of Jesus was spread throughout Scripture. That's that's the, the, the main instrument, the main tool that was utilized. So we've looked at this for a few weeks in a row now, and all of them, all of these stories that we've looked at thus far was Jesus talking to other people. And so today we actually finally get an opportunity to hear believers, people who have put their faith in Christ, talking to other people about Jesus. Because before, the last couple of weeks, you could have just been like, you know what, that's not fair though, that's Jesus talking to them. So of course, they're going to come to faith in Jesus because it's Jesus. And so why wouldn't anybody come to faith uh, in that way? But, uh, but largely, uh, this story is the same way that most people today come to faith. So as most of you know, my wife and I have five boys. Okay. Um, and yeah, a little rumble through the crowd as always happens. And having five boys really isn't pertinent to this story. I just want you to know that having five kids is what's pertinent to the story, but we always like to make sure people know it's just boys for shock factor. Right. And so everybody's like, Oh, five kids. That's okay. You're, you're a little bit crazy. And we say five boys and everybody freaks out a little bit. Cause it's like, what? You got five boys. That's crazy. Um, and so really without fail, like when all seven of us are in the checkout line at like, I don't know, Save Mart, Target, fill in whatever retail store you want to fill into the blank there. And we're at the checkout line and this is the main spot where it happens for whatever reason. And the checker or someone in front of us or behind us always is just like, wow, are those all your kids? <laughs> it's like, 
No, I stole two of them. And so uh, only three of them are mine, and I kidnapped two of them while we were here. Of course they're all our kids, right? And then when we had, when, uh, when, when uh, Noah was really little, right, and it's like that, like wearing green or yellow or whatever, and no one goes, oh, is that a boy or is that a girl? Like, what, you know, whatever. And they're like, are they all boys? And we're like, yeah. And then we get one of three responses, really. Uh, the first response is just like laughter, and people say, you guys are crazy, right? And the second response, um, our least favorite response is the one where people are like, man, I am, I am so sorry for you. <laughs> uh, and then the, the last response, actually our favorite response is really, you know, and it's usually like some, some wise lady who uh, had kids of her own or something like that. And who's just like, oh, you guys are so blessed to be able to have five young men that you get to raise. And it's like this 10 minute long diatribe that they go on and that sort of thing. And all the while, while they're talking, like, I'm trying to make sure my kids don't have like their fingers in their nose or like giving brother wedgie or anything like that. Right. So, um, but it makes me think about the fact that Sarah and I, my wife and I, we really do have a responsibility to those five boys. Uh, as they are being raised in our home, I have a responsibility to those five boys to make sure they do indeed grow up to be men who are uh, leaders of the faith in their household. They're, they're the heads of their homes. They're the ones who are, who are making sure that uh, their brides, making sure that their kids are doing their best to pursue Jesus in some way. And so that's my responsibility. So what is it that I need to do then? Well, if that's my responsibility, then I need to make sure that I am doing those things, that I am doing my best to lead my family in, in that way. And if I want them to be good husbands, I need to make sure that I am showing them ways to be a good husband, to how to serve their mom, how to love their mom well, how to, how to fight and argue well, how to make sure that, you know, if one of the two of us loses our temper, and it's never me, um, but if one of the two of us, <laughs> Sarah's here somewhere, and she's just like shaking her head right now, like, that's not true, um, but, uh, but if one of the two of us are just like, you know, we get into an argument or whatever, figuring out how to resolve that conflict well and love each other well, even in the midst of conflict, we want our kids to be able to, to see those things. We want our kids to be able to see us spending time with the Lord. We want our kids to be able to, uh, to see us being involved in small groups. We want our kids to be able to see us uh, serve other people well. We want our kids to see those things, not just so they can be like, wow, my parents are fantastic. No, because, I mean, if, you're, if you've ever been a kid in here, you know that there was a time in your life where you're like, man, my parents are not fantastic. Um, and so we do that, though, so they then can be trained to do the same thing. We do that to make sure that all of the things that Scripture says regarding parenting, we are doing those things. It's our responsibility as parents to be able to do that. We do that because it's my responsibility, it's Sarah's responsibility to train them up in the way that they should go. That's our job. We have a responsibility to our kids. And through that, I can get a bunch of head nods and probably some amens and be like, yeah, teach them what the Bible says and raise them up the way that they're supposed to be raised up and all those things. But just as important as raising my kids to love Jesus and my responsibility as a follower of Christ, is my responsibility to other people as a member of God's family. 
It's my responsibility as a follower of Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves the question then, what is our responsibility as followers of Christ? What is our responsibility as followers of Christ? And I don't know if this question really has been sufficiently thought about by everyone who calls themselves a follower of Christ. Because there's a number of ways that people actually come to faith. One of the most discouraging ways I ever saw people come to faith come to faith was, uh, it was probably nine, 10 years ago. And I took my youth group at the time on a, on a, on a domestic mission trip to, to St. Louis in one of the poorest neighborhoods um, in the entire country. And so we go and we're spending a whole week with them and we're establishing relationships. We're doing our best just to love them well, uh, talk to them about Jesus when we have opportunities to talk to them about Jesus. And then all of a sudden this big van rolls up they're giving free food out, and which was great because the kids are hungry on a regular base again, poor neighborhood. Um, and then this man walks out of the van. He said, all right, kids, everybody come here. Everybody come here. Kids, come here, come here. He said, raise your hand if you want to go to heaven. And of course, all the kids, I mean, if you get this question wrong, you're, <laughs> we need to have a different conversation. So of course, all the kids' hands shoot up. They're like, yep, I want to go to heaven. And so he says, okay, all you have to do, repeat after me. And he prays, and he prays what is, would be considered the sinner's prayer and just say, God, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner. I want to live my life for you. Amen. All right, kids, let's go eat. In my mind, I'm thinking to myself, time out, like that, that falls woefully short of what Scripture calls us to as believers in Christ. Woefully short. And so I don't know if that was your experience or if someone just said, hey, if you want to go to heaven, you better believe in Jesus or whatever or wherever you are. But a question that we need to ask ourselves is, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, what is your responsibility? What is my responsibility as a follower of Jesus? And today, really, we get an opportunity to read from the book of Acts. Now, if you, if you have your, uh, your Bibles, you can flip open to Acts chapter 10. That's largely where we're, gonna be, where we're gonna be camping today. But what I want to, to recognize is that church is supposed to be more than a Kiwanis club with music. And unfortunately, the state of the church has really kind of fallen into that vein of, you know what, we're a social club with songs. And that's what we need to combat, church. We need to recognize that we have a responsibility to the world as followers of Jesus, and we're going to tear into what that looks like today. So we're in Acts chapter 10, and uh, Acts uh, was actually written by uh, the same author as the guy who wrote the book of Luke. Any guesses on who wrote the book of Acts then? Luke. Good. Good work. You guys are tracking with me. So Acts really was, it was kind of Luke and Acts where a lot of people believe written together at the same time. And so it's kind of volume one, volume two manifesto of Luke. Luke was a doctor at the time. So you see, uh, not just at the time, he was a doctor. Um, you see though that Luke pays very, uh, very careful attention to detail in both of these books. So if you're looking for a gospel account that really recounts like exactly what went down with Jesus, read the book of Luke. And if you're really considering and trying to figure out what the church is supposed to look like in the early church, specifically look like, man, read the book of Acts because Luke spares no expense here. 
He details every little thing. Now, the book of Acts has two main characters throughout the book. Okay, three. Jesus, and then the other two main characters in the story, right? We got Paul and we have Peter. Now, the majority, the first chunk of the book of Acts is dedicated to Peter. And then in Acts chapter 9, we see the conversion of Paul, and the story kind of shifts away from Peter and towards the Apostle Paul. Today, we get an opportunity to look at, uh, look at Peter, though. The title of the book of Acts, just by the way, I thought this was fascinating. The title of the book of Acts actually comes from the Greek word praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S, for those of you keeping score. Uh, a word that was often used in early Christian literature to describe the great deeds of the apostles, to describe the great deeds of other believers at the time. And the, the title accurately kind of reflects the content of the book. It's called Acts because it was the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the things that the Apostles did, the praxis, really. So here's your theological concept for the day then, maybe hopefully something that you didn't know as you walked in today. Um, many of us have heard of the term orthodoxy, right? You probably heard the term, but you maybe didn't know what that term actually meant. Yeah, there's a couple books written called Orthodoxy. G.K. Chesterton has an incredibly famous book called Orthodoxy. If you wanna take a good nap, uh, read it. Um, it's brilliant, but it is dense. Right, So uh, there's the word orthodoxy, and orthodoxy is the term used to define what we would call correct belief, right? It's good theology. Correct belief really is what orthodoxy is. The other side of orthodoxy, though, is one that's seldom talked about in Christian circles. It's the term orthopraxy, O-R-T-H-O-P-R-A-X-Y. So praxy and praxis, right? The title of the book of Acts are two, feel, are, are, that, that's the root of orthopraxy, is praxis. So if orthodoxy is really uh, correct belief, correct understanding, orthopraxy is correct living, and so when we see the word orthopraxis, we even see the title of the book of Acts as praxis, we recognize that the book of Acts really is telling us how the apostles lived correctly. It is correct living. And in chapter 10, where we're going today, we get a chance to see some of the first Gentile converts to, converts to Christianity. So for those of you who haven't been a part of church uh, for any amount of time, you're probably curious then what a Gentile is, right? There, uh, according to Jewish tradition, there are two types of people in the world. There are Jews, and then there's everybody else. Raise your hand if you're not a Jew. Come on, audience participation, raise your hand. Good, there's a couple of you who apparently are in Jewish in here that I didn't recognize, so congratulations. But there's Jews, and there's everybody else. Everybody else would then be considered a Gentile, good. So there's Jews and there's Gentiles. And so for the first time in Christian history, we have Gentiles coming to faith. And if it weren't for this event taking place, none of us in here would be welcomed into the fold that we call Christianity. Because up until this point, only Jews were allowed to be part of this sect called the Way called eventually Christianity. So this is an incredibly important event that takes place in chapter 10. So the first thing we need to take away from this story that though is that Cornelius moved when God told him to move. We're gonna introduce Cornelius to you in just a second. This is what I mean by, okay, Acts 10 verse one. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian 
regiment. Okay, Cornelius was a centurion, okay? Uh, he's a Roman officer in charge of probably about 100 soldiers in the Italian regiment. The Italian regiment would have consisted of 600 soldiers. In the New Testament, centurions are, are consistently viewed in a very favorable light. So that's something you need to take note of here. Okay, Cornelius would have been a guy in a favorable light just because of his position. We're gonna to get to why he was even more, uh, more favorable in just a second. But centurion Cornelius became one of the first Gentiles after Pentecost. Pentecost happens in Acts chapter two. After Pentecost, to hear the good news of Jesus Christ's forgiveness. So he's, he's the first one. So verse two, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So from that description of Cornelius, he's devout, he's God-fearing. It can be inferred that he was, he, he was not actually a fully-fledged convert to Judaism, yeah, I'm not going to get into all the physical reasons why he wasn't a fully-fledged convert to Judaism, but he wasn't. Regardless of that, though, he did believe in the God Yahweh. And so he was a very devout person in that sense. He did worship God. Evidently, he attended the synagogue, um, and to the best of his knowledge, the best of his ability, he followed, he followed what would have been the Old Testament law at the time, Levitical law. So he did all of the things that he was supposed to do, but he still wasn't fully accepted into the fold unto what we would call like a New Testament salvation. He placed his faith in Christ and followed him daily. So he still hadn't done that. Verse three, one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the, to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. Verse seven, when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Luke writes here, Luke, Luke writes here that it's, that it's three in the afternoon. Okay, three in the afternoon is important. You see it a couple different times in the book of Acts. Three in the afternoon uh, is referring to a Jewish time of prayer. And so if that is true, if the, this was his, his time to go and pray, God approached Cornelius by means of an angel while he was in prayer. And later on, later on in the book of Acts, Cornelia, Cornelius called this angel a man in shining clothes, Right? Cornelius responded to that angel by asking, what is it, Lord? And this is where we find out that centurion Cornelius was incredibly devoted to God. He was someone who's devoted by, to, to God by, as evidenced by his prayers, by his generous giving to the poor. The angel instructed him to send for Simon Peter. And so, as I said, the book of Acts largely revolves around Peter and Paul as secondary characters to Jesus. I just have to make sure my theology is correct before somebody nails me to the wall for that. But this is an opportunity here that we see the apostle Peter being beckoned to a Gentile's house. Someone Peter does not know, or at least anything that, re that is recorded, he does not know him. So when the angel who spoke to him left, Cornelius then calls three of his men, right? Two servants and a kind of military aid. 
All of these people probably would have been devout men. It's probably easy to assume that these three had been influenced by Cornelius's devotion to God. They're living in his household. They're living in his home. And so because of that, when Cornelius would go and pray, when he would give offering to the poor, whatever it would have been, they would have taken, taken notice of Cornelius. They would have been taken notice of his actions. And so because of that, they have probably been influenced by this in some way. Think about your own home. Now, so some of you in here no longer have kids living at home, but you have spouses living at home. Others of you do have kids living at home. Uh, you know, I can, I can speak to the fact that, man, when my kids say something back to me that I had said to them already, I'm like, oh, I am influencing you in some way. You can actually hear the words coming out of my mouth, which is also a blessing and a curse, right? And so, so we would assume that these people who are living in Cornelius's household have been influenced by him in some way, specifically in their devotion to God. So Cornelius calls them down and he told them everything that had happened, everything that had happened. And the three of them then went off to Joppa. Now Joppa would have been 33 miles south of where they were, 33 miles south of Caesarea to bring Peter back to Cornelius. Now to us, 33 miles are like, oh, easy. That'll take us half hour, 25 minutes for some of us, right? And here though, this is going to be a full day and a half to two day journey for these people to get to Peter. So the next day, the scene changes, okay? Uh, there, there's 11 verses here after verse eight that are incredibly important verses. We don't have time to get into, into them verse by verse today, but I'll, I'll, I will catch you up. Here's the highlight. So the next day at noon, scene changes. Peter's going up on the roof, right? So Cornelius had sent his three men. They're going to Simon Peter's house or where Simon Peter is, Simon the Tanner's house. It's like, come on, man, get someone with a different name here. Anyway, so they're off to find Simon Peter. And so the scene shifts to Peter going up on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house to pray. And as he was going, it said food was being prepared. It says he fell into a trance. Peter fell into a trance and he saw a sheet coming down from heaven. And on the sheet was every kind of animal that a Jewish man wasn't supposed to eat. Everything. Everything. And then he hears the voice of the Lord. And the voice of the Lord is like, get up, kill, eat. And Peter, like a good Jewish man, was like, uh-uh, I'm not gonna do that. That's probably a trick. You're probably testing me right now. And so three different times, Peter's like, nope, not gonna happen. Nope, not gonna happen. And the thing that I found fascinating here is that Peter recognized that this is the Lord. I mean, if you look in your Bible in Acts chapter 10, there's red letters there. This is Jesus talking specifically to Peter about what is going on. But the, the, the verse that shifts Peter's thinking comes, comes in, verses, uh, or in verse 15 in chapter 10, where it says, where Jesus says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So there's a whole bunch of like Jewish tradition and Jewish law that's going on in this, in this arena. What we need to know to move forward with this story is that what God is basically saying here is, hey, look, the kingdom of God is available to everybody. It's not just available to you and your buddies anymore. It's available to everybody. So get up, kill, and eat. Essentially, this is God informing Peter and through Peter to the early church that the kingdom of God is again open to all people, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. 
Essentially, Jesus is opening the gates for his atonement on the cross to be for everyone, not just the people of Israel, which would obviously confuse a God-fearing man like Peter, the guy who was supposed to be the cornerstone of the church, right? Which leads us to verse 19. So go to verse 19. It says, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, so he's probably a little bit confused. Like he's still thinking about the vision. The spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guest. So all this goes down because Cornelius saw what God had for him and he did it. Hey, Cornelius had no place calling on a, on a God-fearing Jewish man to come to his home and talk to him about Jesus. He was a Gentile. He was an outsider. This wasn't supposed to be allowed. And beyond that, we're going to get to Peter in a second, but Peter shouldn't have had any business with him apart from the fact that God showed up in two different men's lives within two days of each other. And one of which gave a vision to say, hey, go get Peter. And the other vision was, hey, go with these men. And so if it wasn't for the Lord showing up in both of these instances, we, not may, we may not be here today, church. I'm sure God still would have accomplished it. But this event is incredibly important. Cornelius had to be bold. He saw what God had for him and he jumped. He went all in. He wasn't just sitting on the sidelines, but he wasn't the only one who had to be bold in this instance. As we just saw, Peter invited three complete strangers who were not a part of, were not a part of you know, uh, uh, the way Christianity, a part of the early church into this place that he was staying. But Peter was bold because of his responsibility to love people. Peter was bold because of his responsibility to love people. So Peter has to be bold a few different times, right? Peter has to be bold to invite a bunch of strangers into his home. But then Peter also has to be bold to go with them to a Roman official's home and even to step foot in that place. I mean, read Acts 10, verse 27. It says, while talking with him, Peter went, Peter's talking to Cornelius. He had gone with the men by now. While talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. So Cornelius was like, sure. He's like, hey, this is from God. If God's like, hey, go get Peter and bring him back. Cornelius has faith that they're coming back, right? So what does Cornelius do? He invites all his buddies to come over so Peter can come and have a conversation with them. So verse 28, he said to them, Peter says to the group of people, you are well aware that this is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or, unclean, or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask you why you sent for me? Peter is well aware of the consequences of his fellowshipping with Gentiles in his home or in their homes rather. But he had learned the lesson of this vision incredibly well and incredibly quickly. 
from being confused as to what the vision was and still thinking about it to inviting the men into the home to the next day, then going with them back to Cornelius's house, it sounds like he had a whole lot of time to think and pray about what was actually happening here. And so as he thought about it and as he prayed about it, he recognized that, man, God is in the midst of this. The command to eat unclean animals meant, uh, or, or what that command meant was that he was, we, Peter was not to call any man impure. He was not to call any man unclean. So he came without protest. He went. The response, though, on the part of Jewish Christians, if we were to fast forward the story into chapter 11, I'm just going to hit it quickly. You don't have to flip there. And read all of Acts 11 if you're interested in the kind of conclusion and how the early church dealt with this. But the accusation lodged against Peter was that he went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Went into the house of Gentiles and ate with them. The primary problem here actually wasn't Peter preaching to the Gentiles, which we're going to see in just a second. That wasn't the issue. The issue was actually Peter going into their home and sitting with them and eating with them. It would have been a sign of acceptance of them and their lifestyle. Of Peter walking into their home and sitting down at their table and just fellowshipping with them and being with them. It was a mark of acceptance. And this problem, this, this scene right here could have caused a really big schism, a really big break in the early church. But the realization that Peter comes to in verse 17 of chapter 11 should be pretty much our takeaway as well. Peter says, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Man, you want to talk about a powerful quote from scripture? Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And that's Peter's posture in the midst of all of this. Because he was raised Jewish. He was raised to do the things that he was supposed to do. He knew the rituals he was supposed to do. He walked with Jesus and Jesus says, hey, I'm the fulfillment of the law. So not stop doing these things, but hey, I'm fulfilling these things. And so Peter knew exactly what it was that he was supposed to do. And then he gets this vision. And beyond that, I mean, it says he was hungry during the vision. So of course he's going to dream about food, right? But it says he was hungry. And like in this vision, Peter's like, you know what? God told me everything is clean. Everything is now permissible. And so Peter is bold enough to step out in faith and say, who am I to get in the way of what God is doing? Man, what a posture to be able to hold. To say, you know what? I don't care about man. I don't care about the fear of man. I don't care about your acceptance. This is what God has for me and I'm gonna run with it. This is what God has for me and I'm gonna be obedient to it regardless of what other people think. So Peter recognizes that if, if Jesus tells him to love all people, that Jesus' grace is sufficient for all people, then he better be bold enough to do so. So what did he do? Peter simply told his story. Peter simply told his story. Now, to be fair, Peter definitely has a leg up on most of us when it comes to our testimonies, okay? I mean, Peter got an opportunity, like Jesus is walking by Peter, or Andrew goes and gets Peter, rather. He's like, hey, I found the Messiah. And Peter's like, sweet, let's go. We found the Messiah, right? Like that's Peter's convert. And then he spent three years hanging out with the Savior of the world. Three years walking beside Jesus and seeing these miracles and seeing Jesus raise people from the dead and seeing him transfigured, right? Seeing God's glory shown through. Like Peter has a better testimony than us, right? So just to be fair, like that's, but what does Peter do though? 
Starts in, in verse 39 through 43 in Acts 10. He says, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. That look, I saw this. Listen to the things that I saw. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter told them what he saw. Peter told his story, what he had encountered. He told them of the details of Christ's ministry, his death, his resurrection. He told these people all about Jesus, that he saw these things. He told them the truth about what it is that he saw and experienced. Now, his story may have a leg up on my story. He probably has a leg up on your story as well. But his encounter with Jesus is as real as mine. His encounter with Jesus is as real as yours as well. He just got the ability to walk alongside the physical Christ. And if Peter, the rock whom Jesus was to build his church, implemented the strategy of telling his story about Jesus in his life, then we, church, also need to be okay implementing that strategy. There's a reason that we're walking through this series called Oikos. There's a reason that for the last two weeks I've said, hey, work on writing out your story. Work on writing out your testimony because your story is an important one. We've been hearing week after week, people share their testimonies on these screens, how they came to faith. I talked about it last week, but, but to give you like the tweetable version of how to write your testimony, it's like who I was before I met Christ, how I met Christ and who I am now that I met him. If you can answer those three questions, you have a story, you have a testimony worth telling and sharing with other people. And that's what Peter does here. He talks about, he talks about his life. And I saw these things. This is what I saw Jesus do. And then Jesus told us too, and then oh, now I'm doing it. That's what Peter goes through here. And because of Peter's boldness in telling his story to Cornelius and telling his story to Cornelius's oikos, those people who are now in Cornelius's household, Cornelius's oikos came to faith and were baptized. Cornelius's oikos came to faith and were baptized. It tells us that in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words. So Peter's literally still talking at this point. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues Oh, and praising God. So Peter would have had numerous people that he brought with him to Cornelius' house. His best guesses are somewhere in the range of five to six people. So this isn't like Peter and Cornelius getting in a room and being like, hey, you know what would be awesome for scripture that people will read in 2,000 years? Is if we talk about how Gentiles are now open to the family of God and like did this. There were witnesses here who saw this and, and Peter is still talking and the witnesses are the ones who saw those people, those Gentiles have the Holy Spirit come upon them. 
Then Peter said in verse 47, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And just like that, from that point on in history, you and I are now welcomed into the family of God. It was that event that took place that allows you and I to be welcomed into the family of God. The fellowship of believers, because of Cornelius and Peter, were bold enough to step out in faith. Were bold enough to listen to what God had for them and step out in faith. So then the question remains, what does that have to do with us? What does any of this have to do with any of us? And I feel like if you've been following along with this story, it's pretty transferable to each and every believer's life. Is that we need to share our story with our oikos because we have a responsibility to love people well. In the same way that I have a responsibility to train my kids up, in the same way that I have a responsibility to steward my things well, to steward my money well, I have a responsibility as a Christian to love other people well. I have a responsibility as a Christian to love my oikos well, to share my story with my oikos. Our responsibility is to love people well, and I've been banging that drum since I got here. Love people, love people love people. And that's, that's the truth. It doesn't say love people who look like you. It doesn't say love people who act like you. Actually, this is the exact opposite of that. This says love people who couldn't be any more differently, different than you. Peter was bought, like Peter shouldn't have gone into this place. Peter's risking everything here. And if he wasn't sure that God was in the midst of it, man, my hope is that he wouldn't have acted. But Peter, a good Jewish believer, just waltzed into a Gentile's home. and was like, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. That's what Peter did. It doesn't say, like, the, these people have to be the same as you. They, they, they have to have the same conclusions politically as you do. They have to share the same lifestyle choices as you do. It simply tells us that we need to love people. That's it. And it's hard to do. It's a simplification from the stage to say, just, hey, go love people. I get that. I'm not trying to make light of that. It's difficult because we all have our biases. We all have our sin nature and we need to try and get beyond those things. But if the savior of the world tells us to love people, I think that's a good enough mandate for us to do our best to get beyond those preconceived notions that we've held for too long. We need to be willing to love people regardless of who they are, regardless of what they believe, regardless of what they look like and especially regardless of your comfort level. But how is it that you love people? How do we love people? And this is a portion where I think some people miss the boat. Some people miss the point. We can't love people fully until we introduce them to Jesus. We can't. Especially knowing the good news of Christ, we can't love people fully until we introduce them to Jesus. One of my favorite quotes when I was in high school, you guys have probably, many of you have probably heard, heard it, was by a guy named St. Francis of Assisi, right? And some of you have probably quoted it, and I hope I don't blow up your paradigm right now, but the quote essentially goes like this, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words, which is a great quote, especially for a high school student who didn't want to talk about Jesus, 
right? Because I'm like, hey, if I can be a good person, if I could do the things that I'm supposed to do, if I could love people well and just like be accepting of people, and then man, maybe people just assume that I love Jesus. That won't have to do anything. Look, St. Francis said I don't have to talk about him. Man, I got to agree with St. Francis and I know he's a saint and I hope this, you know, doesn't jack me up for my eternity or anything like that. It won't. <laughs> but I got to disagree with him here. Is that if you want to love people well, it's preach the gospel at all times, period. With your actions, yeah. With your words, yeah. With your oikos, absolutely. With your story, absolutely. Preach the gospel at all times, period. And church, can, can we imagine what it would look like if each of us simply shared our story with our oikos? Simply shared our story with those eight to 15 people that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed into your life. And through that, introduce them to Jesus. And if we were authentic enough, and if we were bold enough to step out in faith to share our story with those who don't yet know the Lord, what, what would that look like? There's, entire, there's an entire world out there aching and groaning to know their savior. And we all see it. All of you see it. Turn on the news. Open your social media. Have a conversation with anybody on the street. We recognize that the world is in dire and desperate need of their savior. But church, we need to, we need to be the church and we need to be bold enough to initiate some sort of change, to allow people to know who it is that has saved them from depravity by telling them who it is that saved you from depravity. So this week, uh, I want you to take your Oikos card that we've been giving out, and I hope you all have them. If you don't, if you're new with us, there's Oikos cards at guest services right out there. Go ahead and grab one. And there's a list with 15 slots on it. And so far, church, I've asked you to pray over a blank list. I asked you to fill out that list and pray over it. And then I asked you to start, start working on your story. And so what we're building up to is the last message in this series is two weeks away. It's on August 11th. And I'm going to challenge you as a church to step out in faith, be bold enough to share with somebody in your oikos about Jesus. And not only share that with them, but then also invite them to come to church with you on the 11th. Also invite them on the 4th, invite them on the 18th, invite them on the 25th. I don't care when you invite them, church. But I put a date on it because I want you to feel the burden and the pressure of making sure the people that are in your life know who Jesus is and know that, that Jesus is important enough to you, that belief system that you have is important enough to you to then share it. Church, there's a whole world out there who's aching and is in dire need of your boldness to be able to share the savior of the world with them. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word in Acts chapter 10 and a little bit in 11. And just God, thank you for the life of Cornelius, the life of Peter, and their willingness to just simply be obedient to you, be obedient to your call in their life. God, that you showed up, and as you showed up, they stepped out. And they stepped out into faith. God, I pray that same boldness for each and every one of us. 
that we would recognize that we don't need a vision, we don't need a trance for us to be able to say, okay, I need to talk to people about who Jesus is because we have your word right in front of us that very clearly tells us that we're supposed to do that. And so God, I pray that we would be bold. I pray for each and every person on each and every Oikos card that we have in here. God, that we would be intentional with those people, that they would come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. God, that you've rescued each and every one of us from depravity. And for those who don't yet even know that themselves today, who haven't said yes to Jesus today, God, I would just ask them to pray along with me with eyes still closed and heads still bowed, that we, would say that we, we pray the ABCs here that say, Father, A, I admit I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I know I messed up. I mess up every single day. I sin every single day. The things that I do, God, I, I know it's, they're not good things. They are things that are apart from your will. So Father, I'm a sinner in need of a savior and I admit that and B, I believe that you sent your son on the cross to die on our sins in the same way that Peter talked about that. Same way that Peter preached about that, that he went to the cross, he bled, he died and he rose again. God, to, to be able to restore a correct relationship with us to you. And that see, that choose to follow you, choose to follow your son, choose to follow your word every single day of my life. And Father, we're thankful for you. And we're thankful for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.